Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of September 7th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Voting Season, Seven Things to Remember, by Joe Davis for the Jeffco Transcript. Missing Arvada Teens Family Seeks Community's Help, by Joe Davis for the Jeffco Transcript. City Council hears updates on homelessness in Arvada. Council evaluates data collected since January 9th meeting by Lillian Fuglay of the Arvada Press. And the way of water. Tubes, tubers enjoy final days of summer on Clear Creek by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. And following up with various articles. Boating season, seven things to remember by Joe Davis. The first ballots go out to voters in the military and those living overseas in less than a month. It's voting season, and there are a few things residents of Jefferson County should remember. So take notes, mark your calendars, and open your bookmarks for some valuable information. Also check your voter registration to ensure it's up to date. Number one. Mark these dates in your calendar. The key dates for voters are the first day ballots go out when ballots are due and election day. In Jeffco, the first ballots for military and overseas voters get mailed out on September 23rd. Everyone else's ballot is mailed on October 16th. The ballot boxes also open on October 16th. October 30th is the last day to mail ballots if you want them counted. The in-person vote centers open on this day as well. Election day is November 7th. Number two, no late ballots. Ballots postmarked November 7th will not be accepted. The state of Colorado and Jefferson County must have the physical ballot by the close of election day, November 7th. The Jeffco Clerk and Recorder's Office recommend mailing the ballot eight days before election day, which is... October 30th. Number three, voter registration is accepted until 7 p.m. November 7th at voting centers. Clerk's office recommends checking your voter registration now. They need the up-to-date information in order to send your ballots on October 16th. If you can't get it done in time, you can update your information or submit a new voter registration at any Jeffco Vote Center right up until 7 p.m. on election night. The state DMV offices, the Jeffco Clerk and Recorder's Office, and authorized voter drives are also places where new voters can register and current voters can make updates. Number four, don't forget about the ballot boxes. There are ballot boxes located throughout Jefferson County. These are designed to give 24-hour, seven-day-a-week access to voters for returning ballots. After October 16th, drop your ballots into any Jeffco ballot box until the close of Election Day. Number five, go to vote centers for in-person voting, registration, and ballot mishaps. Vote centers are known for accessible in-person voting. These are also places to register to vote if needed before voting. These centers are also the place to go if your pet eats your ballot, something spills on it, or if you lose the ballot altogether. Walk into a Jeffco vote center and the election workers will help you cast your vote. Number six. Sign up now for ballot tracks to stay connected to your ballot when you part with it. 
Sign up for Ballot Tracks now. It's a Colorado state system that will send you updates on your ballot and is mailed out to you, processed, sorted, certified, and counted. Sign up on the Colorado Ballot Tracks webpage. That's Ballot T R A X webpage. And number seven, find locations, dates, contact info, and more on votejeffco.com. If you have any questions about any part of the process, go to votejeffco.com for the answers. The Jefferson County Clerk and Recorder's Office updates the site regularly to keep voters informed throughout voting season. Find the location of a ballot box near you, the hours for a vote center, and more on the site. When election night is over, the results will be posted on the page as well. Missing Arvada Teens, Family Seeks Community's Help by Joe Davis Isla Reyes has been missing since August 6th. The flyers emblazoned with her likeness all say that she's endangered and missing. According to Reyes' aunt, Julie Mitchell, the missing teen may be in the company of a much older man. The Arvada police are investigating the case as a missing persons case. Everyone wants to bring Isla home. According to Mitchell, Reyes was last seen on August 6th. She describes Reyes as a sweet and friendly girl who is also a neurodivergent. She is a Filipina and Caucasian girl of 17 who has brown hair, brown eyes, and a septum piercing. Reyes is 5 feet 4 inches and was last seen wearing black cargo pants or black shorts, a black crop top, and or a gray hoodie along with black Converse sneakers or Crocs. Mitchell said that the family believes Reyes is in the presence of a 29-year-old man from Honduras with whom she has a dark history. Mitchell said that drugs may be involved. The family fears that Reyes was groomed in the months before she went missing. Arvada police say they have investigated this lead and are taking in and considering all of the information that the family has given them. Detective Dwayne Eaton of the Arvada police said that they are, quote, investigating this case as a missing person's runaway. The distinction, according to Public Information Officer Dave Snelling, does not mean that the family's theories are discounted. In fact, Snelling said the police are working closely with Reyes' family to bring her home. We are empathetic towards the family and what they are going through right now. We know it's difficult when children go missing, Snelling said. He added, although there are no updates on the case at the moment, it is active and two detectives, including Eaton, are working on the case. Snelling said the officers in the missing persons have kids of their own, so cases like Isla's are taken very seriously. Reyes' family suspects trafficking and has recruited the help of investigators from the Anti-Predator Project to find her. Detective Eaton has been in contact with them as well, according to Snelling. Mitchell is concerned that Reyes has been off her prescribed medication for weeks as well. We just need to bring her home, she said. If you have any information, tips, or sightings, call 911 or Arvada Police at 720-898-6900 or call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 800-843-5678 or 800-THE-LOST. City Council hears updates on homelessness in Arvada. Council evaluates data collected since January 9th meeting by Lillian Fuglet. Arvada City Council took a look at a homeless at homelessness within Arvada and what the city was doing to address it during a recent workshop session. The August 28th meeting focused on the city's methods for collecting data on homelessness so officials could have a better understanding of homelessness within Arvada. This session came a little over six months after a January 9th session when the council evaluated homelessness in the city and identified the next steps the city would take. 
at that session, council resolved to take a managerial role dealing with homelessness in Arvada, meaning the city would not provide services, but rather work with the county and other organizations to facilitate services. During the August 28th session, team members presented updated data on homelessness in Arvada. The city has begun using a homeless management information system, or HMIS for short, to collect data. According to HMIS data from January 1st to July 31st, 553 people were served by organizations that used HMIS. The presentation also discussed data from community organizations, Mission Arvada, an emergency day shelter in Arvada, reporting, ser reported serving 696 individuals since January 2023. 412 of those were people registered in HMIS with the city. Aaron Atencio, the city's homeless project manager, said that having this number of people who were counted in data by both Mission Arvada and HMIS helped the city estimate how many homeless people were living in Arvada. However, she added that HMIS usage needed to be expanded. According to Atencio, HMIS is currently only used by three organizations within Arvada, Mission Arvada, Family Tree, and the City of Arvada. Community Table, a food pantry in Arvada, reported serving 12,139 individuals. According to Atencio, Community Table recently began collecting data on homeless people the food pantry served, with an estimate of around 300 people. Atencio added that the city, the city believed many of the homeless people using services from Community Table were also served by Mission Arvada. Arvada Police Chief Ed Brady talked about the impacts of homelessness on Arvada's police. Brady noted that in 2022, the cost of APD's response to homeless, including calls for service, core officers, co-responders, and camp cleanups, was nearly $1 million. He also noted that between January 31st and May 31st, there were 72 camp cleanups, the average cost of which was $1,094. Brady also said that APD has trained other city departments, including parks, public works, and utilities, to identify and post unoccupied camps for APD to clean up. I feel like that has been working, Brady said. It was encouraging to hear our park directors Parks directors say that she has received less complaints about encampments this year in the parks than she has in the past. Arvada Municipal Judge Catherine Kurtz then updated council on the One Small Step program, a program designed to rehabilitate criminal defendants experiencing homelessness. Kurtz said that there were currently 52 defendants active in the program, with three expected to graduate in the next month. She added that since 2021, there had been 10 graduates from the program with a 0% recidivism rate. Quote, I think the recidivism rate just speaks volumes about the success of our program, Kurt said. Recidivism is very common amongst our defendants, so to have 0% recidivism, it's shocking to me and awesome. Kurtz also said there were 58 defendants on warrant status, meaning that they had failed to appear for court. The One Small Step program has recently undergone several changes, including changing the time court meets to Tuesday afternoons, which Kurtz said had increased attendance. The program had also has implemented a phase structure with participants moving through four distinct phases in order to graduate. The program has also recently received a grant from the First Judicial Bar Association, which will be used to purchase gift cards as rewards for participants as they move through phases of the program. The team provided updates on actions set at the January 9th meeting. Several of the immediate actions had already been completed, such as establishing an outreach team in coordination with the city's homeless navigators, contracting with providers for camp encampment for camp encampment and debris cleanup, 
hiring a second homeless navigator, getting the city and service providers to use HMIS, and joining the Adams County Regional Homelessness Effort. Council also heard an update on the financial side of the city's efforts to address homelessness. The city's housing team has recently been awarded a transformational homelessness grant of just over $1.9 million over the next three years. The money will be used for street outreach, bridge housing, and emergency sheltering. City Council's discussion after the presentation was brief, consisting mainly of small comments from Council rather than a discussion. Several council members noted the importance of the city not becoming a service provider, but rather facilitating access to services that combat homelessness. Quote, I was really happy to see the overall philosophy that this city is really a facilitator in these efforts. Council member John Marriott said during the meeting, the city isn't the service provider in these necessary, in these necessary services that people need, but we do play a role, obviously, in facilitating. So I'm happy to see that, and I would like to just make sure that that remains reinforced as we go forward, end quote. The meeting also focused on the importance of partnerships, both within Arvada and outside of Arvada. Quote, one of the challenges are gaps that we've identified as a lack of coordination regionally, Councilmember Randy Mormon said. So I really appreciate us as a city saying that we're going to try help to help lead in that effort. We can't do it alone, but we're going to try and lead, try to lead and try to move that forward. Many of the people who find themselves in home, homeless in Arvada are Arvadans, Mormon added. They are our neighbors, so it's not an us versus them kind of issue. It's all of us in this. It's all of us in this that need to solve this together. Tubers enjoy Final Days of Summer on Clear Creek by Corinne Westerman. Perhaps there's no better place to spend the dog days of summer than on or in Clear Creek. As temperatures in Golden reached 90 degrees leading up to Labor Day weekend, hundreds of people decided to beat the heat on the creek. On August 30th, the creek had a steady stream of tubers, swimmers, kayakers, inflatable boaters, boogie boarders, and people and canines dipping their toes and paws in the water. What was a rushing river a few months ago was now a trickling stream, essentially. Before, it would take a full sprint or bicycle to keep up with someone floating down Clear Creek. On August 30th, those casually walking along the Clear Creek Trail were just as fast, if not faster, than the tubers floating down the creek. Historically, the tubing season winds down after Labor Day. However, because the tubing season started a bit later than usual, tubers might opt to continue visiting Clear Creek as long as the weather permits. The City of Golden launched a data collection system for tubers this summer, and staff members expect to present their findings to City Council in October. Creek visitation has increased year over year since 2012, according to the City. So officials are making adjustments to the creek area each year to adapt to higher volumes and improve users' experiences. A Seussical Musical at Lakewood Culture Center. Coming attractions by Clark Reader. It may not be a proper word, but when someone describes something as Seussian, you basically know what it means. Dr. Seuss is famous the world over for the fantastical and surreal worlds he created and populated with characters like the Cat in the Hat, Horton, the Elephant, and the Lorax. And now that world and many of its most beloved inhabitants are coming to the Lakewood Cultural Center, courtesy of Performance Now Theater Company. This is a show that anyone can enjoy, said co-director and choreographer Kelly Van Osprey, who is leading the production with Victoria Holloway. It's not only a children's show, it's smart enough that the adults in the room will also get a lot out of it. Performance Now's production of Susical runs at the Cultural Center, 470 South Allison Parkway in Lakewood, 
from September 8th through September 24th. Performances are at 7.30 p.m. on Friday and Saturday and 2 p.m. on Saturday and Sunday. The musical is an amalgamation of several Sioux stories and follows Jojo, Sarah Atkinson, whose propensity for storytelling and a big imagination gets the action going. The cast includes Christopher Boex as Cat in the Hat, Josh Harris as Horton, Nancy Evans Begley as Kangaroo, and many more. I'm delighted by this show, which is so funny and very sweet, said Van Ospreay. It's been so much fun working on the choreographer, uh, on the choreography for the production's music as well. The production doesn't try to bring Seuss characters to live via recreation to see how wrong that can go. Look no further than the 2003 Cat in the Hat film, but instead uses animal-like elements, so the characters are recognizable but with their own bent. And while the music may not have yielded any new standards, that doesn't mean it doesn't have its charms. Van Osprey described it as a fun blending of blues, gospel, and some jazz, resulting in tunes that are very, quote, hummable and hooky. This show is a great one to bring a child to, but as an adult, you'll enjoy and appreciate the very theatrical world, she added. It's a very universal show about believing in the power of imagination and our ability to go forward with our own storytelling. It's a big Broadway musical in the best sense. Tickets are available at performancenow.org. Honor Vietnam veterans with Wings Over the Rockies. Wings Over the Rockies will work in partnership with the United States Air Force Historical Foundation to celebrate Vietnam veterans at the Wings of Valor, honoring Vietnam Air War Veterans event, held from 6 to 9.15 p.m. on Monday, September 18th at Wings Exploration of Flight, 13005 Wingsway in Inglewood. According to provided information, the event serves as a tribute to the aviators who flew during the conflict. Visitors will get to see an aerial demonstration, hear live music, and sample cocktails and hors d'oeuvres. Special guests include the Vietnam Veterans, National Air Museum's Air Power and Space History Scholars, and General Ron R. Fogelman, USAF retired. Details can be found at wingsmuseum.org slash events slash wingsofvalor. Denver's Jazz Festival celebrates music's early years. Jazz in its earliest forms are the reason many fell in love with the music. That's what makes the CM Dance 2023 Denver Jazz Festival more than just a fun event. It focuses on vintage jazz and blues from the 1920s through 40s when the world was first getting exposed to the genre. The festival runs from Friday, September 15th through Sunday, September 17th. The studio loft at Ellie Calkins Opera, Opera House, 980 14th Street in Denver. The festival features neo-dance stories, immersive show. According to provided information, attendees will be able to learn more about the music through workshops, classes, and lectures available from internationally renowned instructors during the daytime hours through the sister events Lindy on the Rocks and Hot Night Fusion Weekend. Find all the information at cmdance.org. And Clark's Concert of the Week, Drake at Ball Arena. Emotional boys of the world unite. Drake, our Lord and Savior from the Canadian North, is deigning to stop by our humble sim city and perform his record-breaking odes to loves one and lost, the challenges of the humble and the hum humbling of the challengers. Ever since Drake released Take Care, his momentous second album back in 2011, he's become a titanic figure in the music and pop culture world and released two excellent albums back in 2022. Word is, he has another lined up. He truly never stops. It's been a minute since the Heartbreak King himself performed in Denver, so his concert at Ball Arena, 1000 Chopper Circle in Denver at 8 p.m. on Friday, September 8th, is a really big deal. Drake will be joined by frequent collaborator 21 Savage, making the night extra special. Ticketmaster.com for tickets. 
Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at Clark with an E dot reader at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Inside the Denver Tenant Power Movement by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading Meet the Denver Animal Shelter's First Social Worker. Her job is to help people keep their pets well cared for and at home by Isaac Vargas. And This Affordable Health Center just expanded its dental pharmacy offerings. Now it wants to show it off with a block party by Desiree Matherin. From Westward, I'll be reading Here for the Kids Moves On from Colorado and White Women by Benjamin Neufeld. And Group Pushing Denver Nightmare Changing Its Name Diving Into Safety Solutions by Katie Cheshire. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Inside the Denver Tenant Power Movement by Robert Davis. Abigail Espino started organizing a tenant union at the Edge 26 apartment complex in Edgewater after the landlord, Tryon Properties, a multifamily real estate investment firm headquartered in Hollywood, California, increased her rent by more than 55% from $900 to $1,400 per month. She said she had also heard from Hispanic families at the complex that white families were getting their maintenance issues first, sometimes a month or two ahead of Hispanic families that filed similar work tickets. Some Hispanic families even resorted to fixing their own dishwashers and showers because of it, Espino added. Some households, like Espino's, lived without hot water for a week or more last winter, she said. Those testimonies hit home for Espino, who told Denver Voice that part of the issue was that Tryon didn't have someone in the front office who spoke Spanish. I couldn't believe that some people were living like that and the apartment managers weren't doing anything to fix it, Espino said. So, the Edge 26 tenants started organizing a union with the help of Edgewater Collective, a local nonprofit organization. They showed up to city council meetings and told the community about their living conditions. At first, Espino said a lot of people showed up, and that seemed to push Tryon to hire an employee who spoke Spanish. But then attendance at the tenant meetings started to dwindle. Espino said she suspected people stopped coming because the union couldn't address the community's main concern, rent increases. We are here to help, but there are some things that we just can't address, and unfortunately, rent is one of them, Espino said. Espino's situation at Edge 26 is similar to the experiences that many tenants in Denver face as the city's multifamily market continues to soar. Commercial real estate firm Marcus and Milchap's Q2 2023 Denver Multifamily Market Report found that the city's 90% rent payment fulfillment rate and high average yields continue to draw out-of-state investors to the market. Out-of-state investors accounted for nearly half of all transactions over the last 12 months, and that investment activity is one reason why the city's average rent has increased by more than 28% since March of 2020, up to nearly $2,000 per month, according to the report. Tryon Properties is just one company that sees huge profit potential in the Denver metro area's multifamily market. Since 2020, Tryon has acquired properties such as The View at North Peak Apartments, a 288-unit community in North Glen, for $38 million, the 402-unit Terra Village in Edgewater, which was later rebranded as Edge 26, for $109 million, and a 198-unit complex in Aurora called Trail Point on Highline for about $28 million. Tryon also offers its more than 1,200 investors an average internal return rate of 18% over the 18-plus years that the company has been operating, according to its website. Denver Voice reached out to Tryon Properties for comment about the allegations made against the company, but did not receive a reply before press time. 
Some tenants also say that the staggering rent increases some landlords are instituting are putting them at risk of losing their homes. Denver led the nation with a 71% gap between the local median rents and household income between 2009 and 2021, according to a recent study by Witch, a subsidiary of the real estate platform Clever. In turn, tenants across the Denver metro area have formed unions to try and slow rent increases and provide better living conditions for renters. Although many of the issues these unions are trying to address exist at the individual building level, some union organizers say the organizations are driven by the same issues, namely that local lawmakers seem eager to engage tenants about the issues they face but don't show the same enthusiasm when it comes to passing legislation that could stop the issues from happening in the first place. There seems to be a lack of awareness from the people in power, who are oftentimes not renters themselves. Shannon Hoffman, a member of Denver's Democratic Socialist Party and former city council candidate, told Denver Voice in an interview. They're not in close proximity to the people who are facing eviction who are, or who are unable to pay rent, and that precludes them from being able to see the human side of the issue and making the link between a lack of affordable housing and the increasing rates of homelessness that we're seeing. The roots of the frustrations some Denver renters feel predate the coronavirus pandemic, but the events seemingly serve to exacerbate their concerns. Rents followed the demand for non-congregate shelter upwards at a startling pace. At the same time, Low-wage workers like cooks, housekeepers, and cashiers were disproportionately displaced from the labor market at the onset of the pandemic, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. In turn, local governments across the metro area instituted eviction moratoriums to prevent as many people as possible from losing their homes because of pandemic-induced job losses or work hour reductions. They also used federal funds to dramatically expand rental assistance programs and some counties, like Denver, created eviction legal defense programs for renters. Over the past three years, lawmakers in the General Assembly have also passed a wide range of progressive-style bills that prohibit source-of-income discrimination by landlords, housing discrimination based on someone's hair type, and gave tenants more power to address issues in their rental contracts. So why do some renters say these efforts haven't been enough? Hoffman said one reason is that the programs that lawmakers have created are not large enough to meet the scale of need. For example, Denver has its own eviction defense program, but there were still more than 1,200 evictions filed in May, which is 35% higher than the number recorded in May of 2019 before the pandemic began, Denver Wright reported. However, Denver only spends about $1.5 million annually on its eviction program, a total that has remained stagnant over the last two years, according to city budget doc documents. Hoffman added that lawmakers have also failed to pass legislation that directly addresses some of the tenant organization's concerns, like requiring just cause in an eviction case. The bill sought to limit the instances where a landlord could legally evict a tenant, but was ultimately laid over before the last legislative session ended. 18 anti-poverty organizations, including the ACLU of Colorado, Colorado Poverty Law Project, and the Colorado Village Collaborative, penned a letter asking newly elected Denver Mayor Mike Johnston to implement many of the requirements of the Just Cause Eviction Bill, such as ending evictions for unpaid rent and increasing funding for eviction legal defense programs. These organizations also called on Johnston to increase eviction defense funding by up to $10 million annually. There's a real lack of trust, and we're starting from less than zero on many of these issues. Melissa Meha, the state and local policy director for the Community Economic Defense Project, a nonprofit that also signed the letter to Johnston, told Denver Voice in an interview. Another issue that Hoffman said needs to be addressed is Colorado's ban on rent control, which stems from the 2000 Colorado Supreme Court decision in Town of Telluride versus Lot 34 Venture, LLC, also known as the Telluride decision. Lawmakers introduced a bill during the 2023 legislative session that sought to repeal local rent control prohibitions, 
but the bill was subsequently laid over after a strong lobbying effort from groups like the Associated Buyers and Contractors of the Rocky Mountains, the Colorado Apartment Association, and the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce, according to the Colorado Secretary of State's office. While the disconnect between renters and lawmakers has some tenants taking matters into their own hands by organizing, it also has pitted some tenants against their landlords in the courtroom. In early June, five tenants filed a class action lawsuit against Shetter Sulzer PC, a law firm in Denver that specializes in eviction cases. Each plaintiff described situations where they were charged attorney's fees and costs by the law firm after it represented their landlords in eviction cases against the plaintiffs for non-payment of rent. Carol Kennedy, an attorney with the Colorado Poverty Law Project who is representing the plaintiffs, told Denver Voice that Colorado law prohibits these fees from being assessed in cases that are settled out of court, as each of the class action plaintiffs did. The lawsuit also represents an urgent question for lawmakers about how they will enforce new laws aimed at protecting renters as debates about tenant rights spill over into the next legislative session. This is just an effort to enforce the laws as they are currently written and make the system work in the way that it's supposed to work, Kennedy said. Kenzie Hastead, the senior state and local policy program director at Enterprise Community Fund, told Denver Voice that she sympathizes with the frustration of renters because the past few years have been a decidedly mixed bag in terms of policy. Hastead said renters can take some solace in the fact that tenants' rights and affordable housing issues will remain the top issue for state lawmakers for the foreseeable future. There is also a growing coalition of lawmakers under the Gold Dome that seem committed to prioritizing those issues, she said. It used to be that you couldn't get anyone to talk about affordable housing, but now no one can stop talking about it, Hastead said. People are running on it, and they're telling their constituents about it. Affordable housing and renters' rights issues aren't going anywhere. The next two articles are from Denverite. Meet the Denver Animal Shelter's first social worker. Her job is to help people keep their pets well cared for and at home by Isaac Vargas. While on a walk with the Denver Animal Shelter's longest tenured resident, Spot the dog, Josie Pigeon notes that she's allergic to cats. Sinus infections, itchy eyes, and a runny nose are common for her if she forgets to take her allergy medication. It was a lot worse when I was cleaning kennels, Pigeon says. It's just a mild annoyance if I'm around cats for a little too long. Pigeon is the Denver Animal Shelter's first social worker. As the city deals with a spike in surrendered pets, the shelter has hired her to help owners keep their pets out of the shelter, off the streets, and in their homes. Pets are a great support to us, Pigeon said. They're going to offer that unconditional love that a lot of individuals just aren't going to find anywhere else. Then, in the long term, caring for your pet helps you care for yourself. Pigeon moved from Arkansas to Colorado specifically for the University of Denver's Animal Assisted Social Work Master's Certificate. When she started the master's program, she wanted to be an animal-assisted therapist, but her interest in big-picture human-animal issues and social systems led her to pursue a job at the intersection of animal welfare and social work. Growing up in a state like Arkansas that largely banned pit bulls has been her main motivation for going into animal welfare. I came from a very different place where individuals still see animals as property protectors that live outside, Pigeon said. If you were going to study animal sciences in Arkansas, you were studying livestock and poultry. Pigeon graduated from DU during the pandemic, and there wasn't a job that fit her education at the time. She worked as an animal care technician for the Adams County Riverdale Animal Shelter. There, she met Corey, a three-year-old deaf pit bull. My absolute favorite child, Pigeon said. He got so excited when he was finally able to understand what people wanted from him. I loved him so much. Corey landed at Riverdale through the Families in Transition Program, FIT, that provides temporary care for pets of families in crisis due to homelessness, illness, and domestic violence. While at the shelter, 
Pigeon worked closely with Corey, teaching him how to communicate via hand signals and gently shaking the kennel door so Corey could feel her arrival. When they're deaf, they don't really know what's going on around them, Pigeon said. He would get woken up and think he was in danger. Corey's family was never able to come back for him, and despite several failed adoption attempts, Corey kept returning to the shelter for accidentally biting people when they tried waking him up. Tragically, Corey na never made it out. He had been in the shelter a little too long, Pigeon said. Pigeon has spent time getting a lay of the land in her new role since joining the DAS Community Engagement Services team on July 31st. We all know that there's a housing crisis in Denver, Marissa Vasquez said, DAS Manager of Community Engagement. Our program is informed about, by what we are hearing from the community. They don't just need things for their animals, they might need things for themselves. Pigeon will join a team of community navigators who go out into the community in search of those who need support, most often the unhoused, seniors, and people with disabilities. Through door-to-door -door outreach, community events, and referrals from outside organizations, Pigeon will work to identify resources for both pets and people. These resources might include free and low-cost pet medical services, supplies, food, leashes, grooming, grooming, social service agencies, food banks, and other community groups. A lot of what I've been doing is thinking about what this position could be and planning for the future of what we want it to turn into, Pigeon said. Aside from the resource side of things, Pigeon will also undertake the responsibility of offering mental health support for shelter staff and volunteers. It's such a niche experience to have to deal with people surrendering their pets, euthanasia, and the traumatic things you see in the field, Pigeon said. One of the main reasons that I'm excited for, having worked in an animal shelter before, is for our staff members to have someone who has a mental health background. I've seen it firsthand, and I'm right there with them. Although she won't work as a full-time therapist, Pigeon will assist DAS workers debriefing difficult situations, teaching coping skills, and connecting workers to mental health services. According to Vasquez, housing and the costs of animal training are often what leads to the surrender of a pet in their shelters. People get a dog, have the best intentions, but don't realize all of the training needs that they might have. Vasquez said. A lot of training resources are really expensive, and not everyone can afford that, so oftentimes that's how the dogs end up back in a shelter. In order to avoid the carousel of resources that get tossed around, Pigeon will be an internal referrer for the Denver Human Services Agency, meaning she will be able to connect people directly to a city caseworker. A lot of what I will be doing is reaching out to the organizations that I'm connecting them to and making it a little bit more personalized instead of just saying to someone, here's the place, call them. We try to bring a lot of those services in-house instead of relying on external vet partners, Vasquez added. We are able to refer them to our internal vet clinic. We have a volunteer groomer. We'd like to build up as much internal knowledge and resources as we can so that we're not so reliant on a handoff. The Community Engagement Services team has helped spay and neuter more than 3,500 animals. DAS has also helped pay for necessary veterinary services, including vaccines, microchips, mass removals, dental procedures, and medical grooming. Over 150 animals are on a wait list to receive these free services. For Pigeon, social work and animal welfare go hand in hand because social issues that affect an owner also affect the pet. Food, housing insecurity, gaps in education, and threats to violence all play a role in a pet's housing future. If Corey's family had had more access to resources to find housing, he would have lived a healthy and happy life, Pigeon said. If we had someone in my position, he might not have had to be adopted out at all and then he wouldn't have accidentally bit anyone. He could have gone right back home, lived with his family, and he would have had a happy story. This affordable health center just expanded its dental pharmacy offerings. Now it wants to show it off with a block party by Desiree Matherin. Down a long stretch of hallway lies colorful, comfy chairs, 
The walls are adorned with equally colorful artwork made from the hands of local community leaders and artists. Hummingbirds, bison, and antis gathered round the river. Sounds inviting, right? Inclusive. Those are the core values of Tepeyac Community Health Center, and it's only fitting that their new location at 2101 East 48th Avenue represents those values. Tepeyac is celebrating its grand opening of the space on Saturday, inviting nearby neighbors, community members, those interested in health care needs, or just those looking to recognize the path the center took to get to this spot. Tepeyac opened in 1995 under the name Clinica Tepeyac in an 800-square-foot space on Calamus Street in the Highland neighborhood with just two exam rooms. That increased to 10 rooms when it moved to a 6,000-square-foot space on Lincoln in Globeville. One room was reserved for a dentist, one space was reserved for behavioral health, but sometimes it got used for other medical needs. Now, Tepeyac lives at the base of the Vina Apartments in El Rio Suancia. The 10 rooms are still there in one wing of the facility, plus 10 more in an adjacent wing, plus more. The new space has quadrupled in size to about 24,500 square feet. The one dental chair has turned into a dental suite with six additional chairs, an x-ray space, and two procedure rooms. The expansion was a major ask from community members. It's one of the most transformational spaces, said Kristen Weber, director of major gifts for Tepeyac. It allows us to offer much more expanded services. Dental director Dr. Bridget Reming echoed Weber's sentiment. With the bigger space, the staff has gone from one dentist and one dental assistant to a team of 11 with two dentists and another coming in October. Reming said that this increase allows the dental staff to reach additional patients and also motivate patients to come in for more than just aches and pains. It's a lot about making people feel that they are deserving of coming in for more than just pain. You deserve a smile that you're proud of, Reming said. The new suite is also allowing new patients to come in solely for dental services. Before, Reming said there was a prerequisite that all dental patients needed to be part of the Tepeyac system, meaning they had to have received medical care from the clinic. Now the dental program is available to anyone. I hope we can continue to be a resource for patients for them to get all of their dental needs, Reming said, to continue to grow our dental services and really not have to have our care be different from care that you would receive anywhere else. We want to be people's choice, no matter who you are. Another major addition to the clinic is the pharmacy, the biggest need and want in the area. According to Google Maps, the nearest pharmacy is a Walgreens on Colorado Boulevard, a 10-minute drive or a 44-minute walk from the center. When we talk about barriers to care, that's a significant one, Weber said. In our survey about growing and asking what members felt was a need, this was always at the top of the list. It's certainly convenient for the patients. It's absolutely helpful for the providers, and it really does increase patient access. The access is twofold. There's convenience and also pricing. Tepeyac is a federally qualified health center, and that allows the center to offer sliding scale discounts for medication, said pharmacy manager Arcadia Schneiderman. To qualify, folks must be a patient of Tepeyac and be below 200% of the federal poverty level. For a family of four, that's an annual income of $55,500. It's the wow factor. Patients come to the register and they have anxiety and they're scared about the fact that they may not be able to afford their medication or they may have to take steps in order to get their medication. Then you show them the prices and it's $5, $10, and they say, wow, Schneiderman said. The pharmacy is available to anyone, but to qualify for discounted medications, folks have to be a Tepeyac patient. Besides these two major needs, the center also boasts a new mental and behavioral health wing, which will allow for more group therapy sessions and other forms of therapy, such as art therapy and healing circles. There's a larger medical imagery wing for ultrasounds and x-rays and a bigger lab space. Oh, and the new artwork is from locals, including Dan Luna and Arturo Garcia. On Saturday, from 1 to 4 p.m., 
folks can check out the new space and also have their insurance and provider questions answered. The event will start off with Aztec dancers and a group ribbon cutting ceremony. There will also be free food and activities. It's just another way for Tepeyac to give back to a community they've served for about 28 years. We're built by the community and for the community, Weber said. The following articles are from Westward. Here for the Kids Moves On from Colorado and White Women by Benjamin Neufeld. In the three months since the Here for the Kids movement got 1,000 or so white women and national media outlets such as CNN and the Washington Post to cover its protest efforts at the Colorado State Capitol on June 5th, the organization has been lying low. As of September 5th, however, the group is back with new goals and an updated strategy. But don't worry, Governor Jared Polis. The organizers have decided to leave Colorado behind. The group plans to keep working to ban guns, but says it will now take on the climate crisis too, on the national stage. It's also dropping its white woman-focused strategy as it expands those horizons, with the ultimate hope of sending a quarter of a million people to Washington, D.C. in March of 2024 to demand that President Joe Biden ban both guns and fossil fuels. H4TK was created by Sarah Rao, a former Colorado congressional candidate and a co-author of White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better, back in March after a school shooting was reported in Nashville. Rao, who is Indian American, became something of a shepherd for white women after her unsuccessful run against U.S. Representative Diana DeGette in the Democratic primary for Colorado's first congressional district in 2018. She and Regina Jackson, who worked on Rao's campaign, began hosting dinner parties with groups of liberal white women in order to confront them about their implicit racism and complicity in white supremacy, she says. That activity grew into a movement called Race to Dinner, with Rao and Jackson charging a few thousand dollars per guest for the dinners, which typically sold out. A documentary about the movement, Deconstructing Karen, was shown to a sold-out crowd at the C Film Center in March. Through H4TK, Rao, along with the group's other leader, Tina Strawn, hoped to organize a mass movement of white women under the leadership of women who aren't white to use the political influence granted to them by their sex and skin color to pressure state leaders into banning guns and buying them back. The vision started as a state-by-state approach. First, thousands of white women would arrive on the lawn of the Colorado Capitol and request that Governor Polis sign an executive order enacting their demands. Critics such as the gun lobby group Rocky Mountain Gun Owners were skeptical of the goal, but RMGO Executive Director Taylor Rhodes admitted that if they turn out 25,000, as they claim they're going to, maybe that changes things. Following its success, H4TK would move on to another state, and then another, until eventually the whole country was gun-free. Despite the group's best efforts, H4TKs only managed to turn out hundreds, not thousands, of white women for their June 5th protests, and Polis did not ban guns. The movement has not held any more protests in any other states since. Other than some social media posts, H4TKs have been mostly quiet. We've spent the last three months in a place of rest, repair, and restructure, Strawn says. Really, it was a matter of the core leadership team, Syra, myself, and the others who have been leading this work, just regrouping and preparing for what will happen next. We hosted a few of what we call grievance sessions, where we invited folks to come and basically give us feedback. We sent out both internal and external surveys to get folks' feedback on how they felt things were going overall. Strawn adds, we received hundreds of responses back. The main grievance people had was communication, she says. The June 5th protest was meant to last from June 5th to June 7th, but some people weren't clear on the start and end times of the second two days of the demonstrations, according to Strawn. 
Additionally, the organizers asked only straight, non-disabled white women to show up as a matter of safety in getting their point across. Since things went well, everyone was invited on day two, though some people didn't get the message. Communication was also unclear as it related to when Sarah, Sarah and I made the decision that we would show up and we would open it to the marginalized communities, Strawn notes. After working through those issues, Herefore, the kids' leaders began planning their next move. There are two existential threats and crises that we are facing in terms of the future of not only our children and not only the nation, but all of humanity, Strawn says. And those existential crises are two things. Guns, as guns are the number one killer of kids and teenagers in the United States, and also climate catastrophe. And so we are combining those two. She adds, we feel that we have run out of time to continue to listen to endless debates. We've run out of time to hope that legislators do anything to affect change with guns or with the cl climate crisis. And so we have created a two-pronged approach in a much larger scale action. That action will be carried out on March 9th, 2024. We are asking 250,000 people to show up at the Capitol in Washington, D.C., Strawn says, we are going to the one person who has the power to affect both of these crises, and that is President Joe Biden. Strawn acknowledges that that's a big goal, especially when only a fraction of the 25,000 white women they had hoped to bring to Denver on June 5th actually showed up. No, we did not get 25,000 white women to show up in Denver. And no, we did not succeed in having Governor Polis sign an executive order to ban guns, she says. The way that we measured success is that we were able to mobilize people to take action, to move from inactivity and indifference to hope. To meet its new goals, Here for the Kids is expanding from white women to everyone. We fell short of that goal in Denver by just keeping the ask to a very specific demographic of cisgender, non-disabled white women, and we feel confident that by opening up to everyone, that is automatically going to give us a much greater chance of hitting our goal, Strawn notes. She says that organizers will be running an aggressive social media campaign between now and March 9th to help promote everything. As for dropping the state-by-state -state strategy, Strawn says it was a scheduling issue. We don't feel like there's time, she says, of visiting different states. However, the group hopes to eventually organize regional rallies along with the big one in D.C. To help do this, H4TKs is also asking for donations. We are needing $3.5 million to make this happen, Strawn says. When we look at how much it costs to ban abortions, it's in the billions. We recognize that to have these actions take place in about six months, it's going to take a lot of money. So we're currently reaching out to our supporters and asking them to partner with us. Do anything from contributing $5 a month, $25 a month, whatever they can do. While the group is dropping its focus on using white women to advance its cause, Strawn says its message will still be loud and clear. I think what's important is that we continue with our message that the reason we are in a state of emergency where kids are dying at the hands of guns and our entire planet is overheating is due to white supremacy, colonialism, and capitalism, she concludes. Group Pushing Denver Nightmare Changing Its Name, Diving Into Safety Solutions by Katie Cheshire. The 87 Foundation, a group formed to preserve the Mile High City's cultural identity and vibrant nightlife scene through a nightmare approach, is currently in the process of changing its name to One Denver. But it's not just a new moniker that's being rolled out. The group is also working to dive into more safety solutions for local revelers and establishments by commissioning research to gather data on the current state of Denver's nighttime economy. One Denver has contracted the Responsible Hospitality Institute to conduct a landscape assessment. One Denver is raising money to fund the study, which will cost an estimated $250,000 and take 18 months to complete. The money will also go toward programming and coordinating solutions in the meantime. 
We don't want our survey of the communities to be ex entirely extractive, says Stephen Brackett, executive director of One Denver and founding member of the band Flowbots and nonprofit group Youth on Record. At the same time that we're trying to ask people how they want to celebrate their time in the city, we want to actually be able to have activations like cookouts. Other ideas that have been floated include small concerts in neighborhoods where people would get to enjoy themselves while sharing their vision for nightlife in the city. One Denver wants to strengthen the conversation, not reinvent it. The bars and the venues and all those places are deeply embedded stakeholders who have a direct interest in everything being much, much safer, Brackett says. They're, they already are spending a lot of time and effort in working with neighborhood associations and working with local police and trying to find solutions and all these things. One stands for Office of Nighttime Economy, the heads of which are sometimes colloquially dubbed Nightmare. Such a person, and office, would be in charge of coordinating the city's activities outside of traditional government hours, from bars and nightlife to childcare and transportation options for those who work late shifts. Brackett has been talking with people across Denver about the idea. This is one of the things a lot of folks aren't thinking about, Brackett 